Welcome to the Ogletree Deacons Podcast, a brief discussion of compelling legal issues and practical insights. Please note that the information in this podcast is for informational purposes only and is not intended to be, nor should it be construed as legal advice. You can subscribe to this podcast on Apple Podcasts or through your favorite podcast service. Please consider rating and reviewing so that we may continue to provide the content that covers your needs. Please enjoy the program. Good morning, everybody. We are here with another installment of the podcast that John and I have been working on together. This is Frank Davis. With me is John Surma. Good morning, Frank. How are you today? You know, I'm doing pretty good. You know, when we started these podcasts, we'd always talked about having special guests on, and we haven't been very true to that vision in the past. Uh, But today, we are now bringing that vision to fruition and uh, we have a, a very special guest, a vice president of health and safety, to whom you have been long acquainted and befriended. John, you want to make that introduction? Yes. Well, Frank, I, I'd like to introduce you and our audience to Tom Baldwin. Uh, Tom is someone I've known for a number of years and um, worked with in his role as the VP of health and safety for GMR, AMR, and um, uh, I've really been impressed with how that organization's health and safety program is structured and how it operates. And I'm thrilled to death that that Tom is able to to join us, is willing to join us. Tom, if you wouldn't mind sharing a, a little bit with the audience about yourself, your path, what you do today, et cetera, we both really appreciate that. Thanks, John, and thank you, Frank, for for having me. Um, um, it's a it's a pleasure to be here with yourselves and your audience today. You know, my um, how I got here is a bit of a sordid tale. <laughs> you know, I'm probably 17, 18 years old, and I didn't have any real direction. And I kind of fell into this work study program that was going to train me to be a paralegal of all things. And so I would go to class at night, um, and then During the days, I was actually working for this old salty attorney um, at a law firm, uh, you know, in my hometown. And it was really in this same period of time that um, a police officer in my hometown kind of befriended me. He took an interest in me. I went out and rode with him on several occasions. And it was in that moment that um, I really, quite frankly, fell in love with public safety. And so I applied uh, to uh, the fire department in my hometown to become a firefighter, went to fire academy, came out as a firefighter EMT. And probably the really important thing that happened in that time frame was I got introduced to paramedics. And my only frame of reference was Johnny and Roy when I was a kid, the old emergency episodes. And man, I thought that these guys hung the moon. So that became my goal. I want to be a paramedic. About a year later, I saw a flyer announcing the next paramedic class, and I applied. So I go on to paramedic school, and and after graduating, I went uh, went on to work for several large municipalities responding to 911 calls, places like Tulsa, Oklahoma, Kansas City, Missouri, Baton Rouge, New Orleans. So I, I moved up to Tennessee and ultimately served as a police officer. Uh, for five years. And at that, in that point in time, 
a company called Aravac Life Team put an aircraft in the community that I was uh, that I was working in, and I thought, well, wow, that would that's a good deal. I could I could continue to work as a police officer, um, and I can fly part time to maintain my skills as a paramedic. Uh, so that's what I did. You know, from that point, they ultimately brought me into uh, entry level leadership roles that led to larger regional and area manager roles. And then at one point I was reassigned to the company's headquarters. And about a year later, I was liter- I was voluntold uh, by the company's president into the newly created safety department. And I clearly remember the discussion with him. And I said, hey, I, I don't want to be in the safety department. I'm an operations guy. I want to be out there around the flight teams. And he, his response was, well, I didn't ask. So here I'm in in safety. And there were a couple of key events um, that occurred in my early years uh, in safety that really kind of shaped the foundation and really kind of lit the fire or the passion uh, that I have for, for safety and what it does for our people and our organizations. But I think that's, a, that's kind of the, the, the summary of you know, how I started and how I got into this line of work in the first place. I like the progression. I, you know, I kind of started out with the same thoughts myself. I wanted to be in public service, but uh, I, I ended up uh, going and becoming a teacher. And I taught special ed for a few years before I um, moved over and, and went to law school. But it's that's interesting that you worked your way through the fire department. And I sure remember watching Emergency growing up. Uh, and in fact, still watching reruns from time to time now. I was in... um. In Tampa, we have our uh, every December we have our our big firm uh, workplace safety seminar, and I was in Tampa talking to a paramedic out there. And I tell you what, you you guys have some of the best stories, uh, most interesting stories. So <laughs> when you made the transition from flying helos to safety, were you completely grounded? Uh, I was. Yeah, I I had come off of the aircraft um, and was purely focused on safety. Back then, um, the idea of a full-time functioning safety department was not common. And it was just really starting um, as an industry, uh, the air medical industry, uh, we had a high accident rate um, to the point that it got the government's attention. Uh, We had to go up to the Hill and stand in front of Congress. And, you know, really it was because of some of those things that as an industry, the air medical community said, we need um, a greater emphasis and focus on safety. And, uh, you know, really, I think that's where my first opportunity came in with the creation of a full-time dedicated. About what year was that? That was probably 2005, 2006, somewhere in there. Uh, That surprises me. For whatever reason, I guess time compression, the way I think of things, I felt like that had been around uh, and predated me. But uh, I guess not. You took that to Congress, huh? Yeah, they. Uh, we, as an industry, we had to go explain why the accident rate uh, in the air medical community was so high. And we, I think we realized coming out of that, that if we didn't self-regulate ourselves, the government would do it for it and it would do it for us. And we're probably not going to like that. So we, as an industry, started this journey. And I would tell you that from 1980 to 2017, we saw a 95% reduction in accidents in the air medical community. And 
that was that was really accelerated from the work that we did as an industry around building formal safety management systems, using the right technology, training our people, monitoring the culture, maintaining the culture, et cetera, et cetera. I got to tell you, Tom, that's really interesting. So you you essentially, well, not essentially, you you precisely managed your industry expectations by going out, forming an industry group, and then setting the industry standards. Do I understand that right? We did. The uh, There's a group uh, known as the Air Medical Operators Association, or AMOA, that represents about 90 95% of the air medical assets and programs in the United States. And quite frankly, this is a phenomenal group because what we do is we come together as safety leaders and operations leaders. And every quarter we sit down together. We're competitors in a lot of these markets, but you know, competition, um, none of that um, plays a role. Um, everything uh, is really focused on us collaborating as an industry to take care of our people and our patients. Yeah, so competitors uh, in in the free market, but collaborators in safety, uh, which helps you compete on a more even footing, I would guess. Yeah, and it's been tremendous because now when you look at the uh, air medical community um, and the things that we've managed to do, We've invested uh, a tremendous amount of thing, a, a tremendous amount of time, energy, and money uh, into things that are impactful that were not mandatory via regulation. Uh, things like night vision goggles, that's not a regulatory requirement. Autopilots, not a regulatory requirement. But we've invested literally millions of dollars into these technologies because they absolutely have an impact on the safety and well-being of our flight teams and our patients. So does the MOA, um, Air Medical Operators Association, do you publish your own guidelines or standards that you share among the members? We have a list of best practices, and these are things that if you're going to be a part of a MOA, you've got to be prepared to sign up to achieve these best practices. Is that maintained or is that part of something they have to sign up for and agree to in order to be considered for membership in the association? Yeah, that's correct. Wow. Actually, let me back up and let me ask you this question. How long did it take to develop the initial list of best practices? You know, that was a, that was a, um, a work in progress. It was an evolution uh, as we were coming together as an industry to kind of navigate the safety landscape and make these decisions. So, that's something that played out over a period of time. And how often do you update them? Is it a, an annual meeting, a monthly meeting, whenever a new issue comes up? How, how do you all decide when to do that? It really depends. For instance, uh, right now, one of the hot, one of the hot topics, uh, two, two hot topics for us on the air medical side, uh, is the expansion of 5G technology because it can impact the radar altimeters on the aircraft. Hmm. Uh, so we will we will ultimately be developing some best practice verbiage around that, and then the concept of a safety management system, um, which is already mandatory for your Part 121 operators. It's been voluntary for our community. Um, that's going to be mandatory uh, within the next 24 months. There's already a notice of proposed rulemaking that we have we've we've commented on as an industry. So we expect this to. Uh, 
uh, to come to fruition in the next 24 months. And we support this. That's under the FARs, the Federal Aviation Regulations, Part 121 is what you're referring to? That's correct. correct. Tom, if you would, for our audience, because a lot of them are not familiar with kind of the aviation technology, could you explain to them what an SMS is and kind of what that looks like in terms of you know, actual yeah. implementation? So a safety management system is really a formal or business-like process to identify hazards, determine associated risk, mitigate the risk to a level as low as possible, monitor the mitigation, and then there are also promotional elements and policy elements. And by policy, I don't mean a written safety policy. Um, I mean, um, in the policy element, for example, exists the leadership's commitment to safety. That's a formal document. And in that document, um, there's basically a declaration, if you will, that says we're going to provide the human and financial support to ensure that we operate safely. You know, so that's that's really kind of a thumbnail sketch of what an SMS is. I know Frank is kind of geeking out a little bit on the aviation piece, and, and, and Frank can explain his own kind of personal aviation touch. In your current position, you have responsibilities as relates to both aviation assets as well as the ground assets, right? Yeah, that's correct. Global Medical Response is, uh, you know, is the organization that I work for. Uh, it is, in fact, the world's largest provider of ground emergency medical services and air medical services. We also, uh, we also provide commercial, residential, and industrial fire services across the United States. Uh, we're operating right now just over 500 aircraft and thousands of ground ambulances and about 150 fire apparatus all over the U.S. Um, and one Caribbean country uh, where we happen to be the 911 provider. In addition to that, we are also the federal contractor to FEMA. So what we do there is we, we deploy assets and expertise for everything from pandemics to wildfires, hurricanes. Uh, so any of those large-scale natural disasters that you can think of, we're heavily engaged in. And... So for me, I've got, uh, I've got responsibility for all 38,000 employees. I have a, I'm blessed to have a team of about 44 dedicated safety professionals split between air and ground. You know, that's, uh, that's, that's, that's really how we're structured. Want to talk a little bit more about you. Are there any achievements in your career you know, particularly given kind of what this podcast is oriented toward and the, the kind of the safety arena that you'd like to share with the audience or highlight for the audience? Yeah, I think there's a few things that, that are important. One, I want to give, I want to give credit to uh, the organization that, I, that, that I've been working for for the last 24 years. They invested heavily in me. When I started in the safety department, I came in as, a, as an analyst and was really learning the trade, learning the craft from the ground up. During, you know, over the next decade, uh, the organization invested pretty heavily in me. They funded my education. I earned an undergrad in business with an emphasis in organizational leadership. I went on to, uh, to obtain an MBA in healthcare administration. Um, and a lot of people say, well, 
why didn't you get a, why didn't you get a master's degree in aviation safety? This was actually part of a conversation that I had with some of my mentors in the industry. And the idea was, well, don't limit yourself. And an MBA would be a would seem to be a really wise choice for somebody in, in you know that wanted to go into safety leadership. And that turned out to be very accurate because one of the things that we understand when we talk about a safety management system, we're also talking about a quality management system. So um, my MBA was very quality management heavy, uh, and that has helped me tremendously. And then the other, you know, the other pieces were professional certificate in aviation safety and security. And then I was fortunate enough to be able to attend the NTSB's first rotor wing investigation school out in Washington, D.C. Tom, you mentioned the uh, NTSB party process and We'll probably hold off on talking about that because we could end up spending hours on that. But that's a process whereby the NTSB investigates, whether it be aircraft issues um, or other types of transportation issues, rail, what have you. Um, and, and attorneys are excluded from that process. Having said that, you know, I want to kind of shift the focus of our discussion a little bit to your experiences with attorneys in in the realm of safety and, and the your experiences with attorneys in general and and if you would offer to our audience kind of a high level discussion on those two points or high level answer on those two points we'd appreciate it so i think you know i've worked with a wide range of attorneys um, both internally and externally to our organization um, we've got a fairly robust uh, legal team here at GMR. I've had the pleasure of working with some of these attorneys on um, various labor issues that impact safety, aviation issues, and then again, more regulatory centric uh, issues where we're dealing with uh, OSHA, uh, for example. And my experience, um, especially over the last three and a half years, working with you, John, and our colleague, Tanya, is that that relationship between safety and legal is invaluable to our goals as a safety team. How does it work with, with you, you two? Do you, uh, do you all stay in contact or do you all only get in contact uh, whenever there's a crisis? Oh, gosh, no, we, we stay in contact. This goes, again, this is part of the value proposition here in that I don't know everything. I don't have the answers to everything out there. And sometimes I'm left scratching my head. And one of the things that happens is I have the ability to pick up the phone and say, John, if you ever experienced this before, you know, and, and really use, use him as a sounding board, we'll bounce things off of each other. Um, and uh, it works extremely well. Yeah. I heard a quote. Was it Thomas Jefferson that said that, uh, Something to the effect that uh, the more I practice, the luckier I get, suggesting that he makes his own luck. Uh, what, what I've heard today is there weren't regulations governing your business, so you wrote your own. <laughs> and, uh, and now you, you, you work with John in advance. Uh, so kind of sounds like a classic uh, belt and suspenders approach to, to keeping yourself uh, clean and out of trouble. Uh, did, was that on purpose or did, was that something you, you, you planned out? No, I think uh, I think that was on purpose. 
you know, it's like I said early on that we as an industry and even as an organization knew that if we didn't respond and take care of our own industry, the regulator would come in and do that for us. That wasn't very appealing. We wanted to be in control of our own destiny. And um, it's <laughs> to, to, to some extent, it's, it's the same with this, uh, the discussion around legal and safety and why do we need to have, why it's a good idea to have a relationship um, with counsel, right? Because uh, I think probably as we'll touch on, you get into uh, crisis mode. And I would tell you that myself and John and our colleague Tanya have, have lived in, in um, crisis mode of one form or another for about three and a half years. We came together at the onset of the pandemic. Um, our organization played a huge role in that. Um, in the national response. And, you know, there was, there were a lot of pressures. There were a tremendous amount of unknowns and, you know, the ability for the three of us to come together um, was really tremendous for the organization. One of the elements that we pre-gamed on is, you know, the differentiators between good and not so good outcomes. Uh, That's certainly a good outcome in, in terms of and GMR's response, is there any um, any background that you think would be useful to share about why y'all had such a good outcome? Yeah, two, two words, collaboration and communication. It boils down to those two things in my experience. Others may have a different experience there or see that different, but that has, that's been what's important, uh, been important uh, to our success is, is having a level of co- collaboration a routine tempo uh, of communication because look here's what happens when you get into having to manage or lead through a crisis that's not where you want to be just just learning about the attorney that's going to be helping right he doesn't know anything about the organization he doesn't know anything about you uh, and vice versa you didn't know anything about him and so You've just, in effect, stacked the you know stacked the deck against you to have a successful outcome. With regard to managing crises, do you have I don't know how to how to suggest it? Do you do drills? Do you have a plan, a general outline of how you're going to respond to different types of crises? Any any pre gaming uh, in terms of crisis preparation? Yeah, there's several things there. A component of our uh, safety management system is emergency response planning. Um, so we've got the playbook developed for how we respond to a given crisis. Now, behind that is this whole discussion about the intersection between safety and legal. When do we need counsel? When don't we need them? Et cetera, et cetera. We've got uh, emergency response planning, and and I think the nuance there is understanding the relationship between legal and safety. You know, we often talk about uh, those first steps uh, that that need to occur after any crisis or crisis event is put into motion. And I really appreciate how you emphasize the importance of having a, a, a concise response at the initial stages, because we know that uh, anytime there's an investigation of an alleged violation of a standard or even a 5A1 violation, 
the general duty clause under the OSH Act that the the government investigators for uh, OSHA, FAA, wh- wh- whatever government agencies involved, the state plan maybe, they collect the majority of their good evidence to support their case in the first few hours of the investigation. And uh, without having that relationship or without having the good plan that you've talked about uh, in, in your response to John's question, uh, I agree with you. Uh, my experience reflects the same, that uh, it, it does increase exposure to penalties, does increase exposure to alleged violations of standards, it, and it does in, increase, uh, it can increase employee exposure to continued hazard. Well, Tom, it's time for us to start wrapping things up and winding this down a little bit. We appreciate you spending this chunk of your morning with us. It's really been helpful for both Frank and myself. And, 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 you know, thank you sincerely. Wanted to find out if you had kind of any final thoughts. You got anything else that you'd like to share with our audience? Sure. Just kind of my uh, my thoughts around safety in general. Look, our role is first and foremost the safety and well-being of our people and then the protection of the organization from uh, increased risk and liability. In order to do this effectively, I think you have to have a few things. One of those, and I think it's the first one on my on my list, is a passion for safety and a concern for people. Uh, that's That's real important. And it's interesting when I think about my career progression, I got into emergency medical services, one, because it's, it's adrenaline, it's high action, but two, um, I did have a desire to help people in their worst moments. And in the role uh, that I serve in in safety, I'm able to do that. You know, the second point is you got to have a collaborative mindset. What I mean with that is one of my sayings that I share with my team all the time is safety, don't do safety. And, you know, for a lot of folks, that doesn't make a lot of sense. If safety doesn't do safety, who does safety? Ultimately, it's the organization's leaders, those frontline leaders that are truly responsible for their employees for a few reasons. One, we're not there as a safety team at three o'clock in the morning. We're not riding on the aircraft with them. Um, We're not interfacing with our employees every day. You know, and the second piece of that is that they own the systems that that the employees operate in. They own the policies. They hire, they fire, they compensate, right? So that's something that um, has really, um, I think, resonated with our teams because in order to do all of that, you have to be able to collaborate with your operational counterparts, right? And it's, you know, it's important because for us, we operate in a high risk, high consequence environment. And quite frankly, the only way that we can be completely risk free is not to launch the aircraft or not to respond to the emergency. It's been very enlightening uh, for me, and uh, I'm, I'm I'm impressed uh, w- with with how y- you got to this point and uh, the development of your own regulations, uh, your own regulatory structure uh, for the business. Uh, and John, thanks for making the introduction. Tom, I thank you, and and we do appreciate you 
um, sharing your thoughts on, uh, on these issues with us. And- Thanks again, everybody, for listening to us. And we will uh, talk to you again on the next podcast. Thank you for joining us on the Ogletree Deacons podcast. You can subscribe to our podcasts on Apple Podcasts or through your favorite podcast service. Please consider rating and reviewing so that we may continue to provide the content that covers your needs. And remember, the information in this podcast is for informational purposes only and is not to be construed as legal advice.